Making Her Way introduces you to the brilliant, ambitious women behind some of your favorite products and asks them to share their motivations and the practical strategies they've used to achieve their goals. In each episode, we discuss the exact process of bringing a new product to market and to success. Join me as we discuss design, manufacturing, sustainability, and modern marketing. My name is Sarah Lidwell Darnan, and my goal is to bridge the gap between up and coming product creators and the women who are out there already changing the world. Hello and welcome to Making Her Way. Today we're meeting Christine Mason, veteran entrepreneur with a background in tech who started Rosebud Woman in 2017. Rosebud is a prestige skincare brand with a unique focus and we're going to talk about the importance of market research and how to successfully introduce a high-end product that many women won't even admit they need. So thank you so much for joining me here today. I Can you please introduce yourself and tell us what you make? I am Christine Marie Mason. I'm from California. And my company, Rosebud Woman, makes intimate wellness products for all the life cycle stages in a woman's sexual, sensual, and reproductive life. And some body care and lots of books related to how to optimize your sexuality and sensuality and own your body. Wow, that sounds absolutely wonderful and so empowering and necessary. So how did you get to, I'm going to ask you to go back in time a little bit and ask you how you got to the point where you started this business? That, you know, unfortunately, I have to go back to when I was a very small child. (laughs) I've done a lot of other businesses and I really love creating things like taking a concept on a blank sheet of paper and creating it into something that's really, you know, making beauty or making a difference in the world. And I had done mostly technology companies. Uh, That was an expertise I, you know, sort of fell into. It wasn't something I was aiming at. And in parallel, I started doing a lot of yoga and meditation, and I had a bunch of babies. And um, as I got sort of more and more into the embodiment of being in a female body and less in my head, I, I, I got into the came into the awareness that so much of what is going on in a woman's body is either shamed by the culture or ignored by the culture, and how little I knew about my own personal and intimate well-being. Um, so I started making lotions and potions and things at home for my friends and they loved them kind of lubricants kind of vaginal moisturizers kind of body oils those things and then I sold the business in 2016 and meant to retire and travel the world and instead of that happening this idea wouldn't go away and so I commissioned a study of 3,000 women to see if they had the same concerns or things I did around vulvar health and intimacy. And it was of that mass confirmation that there was an opportunity there to bring these things broader than just my 20 friends. And so I began, I began there. But if I look back even farther, like I was raised by my father. And I think the gap for me in knowledge about what it meant to be a woman and how to be a 
totally integrated mind, body, spirit was really missing. So I had to sort of retroactively go and fill in the gaps around feminine, um, let, let's call it uh, not female because of female embodiment that gets into gender dynamics, but um, a yin way of life, like a way of life that lets us perceive and slow and undulate and feel into our bodies. I had to really relearn that from the beginning because I didn't have that female motherly mentorship. So all of that stuff sort of conspired to create this. Oh, and I had a, I have a farm where we grow tropical plants and I was making extracts there of one particular plant that in Polynesia is um, considered an aphrodisiac and a, a sexual enhancer for women and something in that process about becoming familiar with the plants and that they have basically all the medicine we need got me really into plant medicine and you know how do we how do we work better with what's being provided to us and not with lab chemicals so the combination of those things brought me to start it wow and had you any business experience any experience running a business before you got started yeah yeah i did i did uh, my first business i did actually when i was 16 i think i that was a, like a, a dance exercise business and then i did an outsource business for other women who had high high degrees where we were staffing and sold that a staffing business and then i did it my first dot com technology company in 1998 and then I did another technology company in 2004. And those all grew from zero to many millions in sales. And I had, you know, one person or two people in a kitchen to 45 employees or 50 employees. And, and um, they were sold eventually. So I've done bunches of business. What's happened as I've gotten older is that I've aligned the what of my business more with what I am passionate about in the world. And the closer those two things come together, the less the creation of the business is. I'm mining an opportunity or solving a problem. And the more it is like, I can't wait, wait to wake up and begin making the thing. Um, so the last couple of, of endeavors have been highly focused on health and wellness. I had never done a beauty company before uh, or a, an, a, any kind of a body product or consumer physical product, although I'd done consumer software. Um, so it was, it was in a very intense learning curve. Um, but a lot of magic happened in the start that lessened. I got a lot of help from exactly the right people at exactly the right moment in, in an advisory capacity in the beginning. I see. So what was the beginning? What was the first thing that you started making? What were the first steps you took to launch Rosebud? Well, as I was saying, I, the first thing I did was validate my my understanding of what the need would be. So I, com I did invest money right away. I commissioned an outside company to do a survey. And I said, I really want to get a sense of what women's needs are and how those needs differ by age. And what other circumstances might be engaged. So I knew moisture was a pervasive issue for women who had gone through menopause, but did it also was an issue for women who were younger. So the survey came out and said uh, the, num the, the, the top four concerns were moisture, tissue laxity, and that that was correlated to whether you had gone through menopause or if you were on medication, antidepressants or other drugs that create dryness if you'd had a cancer treatment. So it wasn't as much age dependent as it was body chemistry dependent, which had some correlation to age. Um, then the next question that women had was uh, around arousal or sensitivity. And that was not so much correlated to age either. That was correlated to whether or not they'd had a child, um, a vaginal birth, 
And if they'd had a vaginal birth, there was a, sometimes less of a sensitivity in the region, less of a capacity to feel. Um, and if they'd had sexual trauma, that was also highly correlated to the amount of sensation a woman could perceive. There were, the other complaint was occasional irritation, redness, swelling, itching. Another one was scent or a sense of being clean or uh, cleaning without being dry. So taking, there were a bunch of other things that women named, but taking the top four concerns, I went to a chemist who worked only in organic and plant-based products and said, these are the needs. This is what my research has shown from Caucasian witch wisdom from Northern Europe, from that plant tradition, from Latin American shaman wisdom, from Chinese medicine, from Ayurveda. This is what's used in all of these countries to solve these concerns. What can we do to make the perfect plant-based product clean as can be? You know, don't worry about price. Let's make the best product we can make. And so that was the first step, was really trying to get the formulations right. And then the other piece, the next piece was... A lot of things in intimate wellness for women are either sexualized and, you know, packaged in really a cheesy purple and bright yellow and shazam. And, and a lot of them are medicalized and they're, you know, you have a problem. It's very serious. We're going to treat it in this way. And you find it in like the corner aisle in the drugstore. And what I wanted to do was make a beautiful, glowing glass packaging that was like in of itself an object of desire that you could leave out on your night table and have there to uh, to remind you every night to apply it. So I was really wanting to tie what I perceived to be the beauty of a woman's anatomy into the packaging itself and have the brand carry this message of reverence in everything it did. So the next thing was working on packaging and branding. Um, yeah, I could talk. I can talk without interruption, Sarah. So <laughs> This is absolutely wonderful. So, and the, I mean, the products, they're not inexpensive. And I love that you are, that you didn't compromise at all with your ingredients. You didn't compromise at all with what went into these products to make them work. And I have a huge amount of respect for that. What were your first products that you started out with? Because you have quite a number on your website right now. Yeah, I started my, my sort of everyday product is called Honor Balm. You're right on the price point. Like I want a couple of things. I, we do get questions on the price and I don't want to like defend. I really wish that I could, I will get them to a lower price point at some point in the future. But when you start an independent skincare line, the first thing you learn is that most of the quality manufacturers will not do minimum order quantities under 10,000 units. And so I had to really work with that, uh, yeah. how to find the right. And even that for many of them, they, they won't do 50,000 or 100,000. So I had to find these boutique manufacturers who are willing to work with 5,000 or 10,000 quantities as I got off the ground. And even that for many people is a, a stretch, many entrepreneurs. And so, so that's one thing is just working at the scale of, of a boutique artisan maker raises your costs. We were also yeah. very committed to making in the United States, uh, paying fair wages, um, making sure that all of our workers in Los Angeles had a living wage, like people who are packing boxes and things like that. And so that's all built into the product. 
I think people have been trained to low prices because they're they're buying things that are made by slave labor in somewhere halfway around the world. And they're made by things that compromise and treat the environment as externalities. So it, it is, yes, we're pricey, but it's also that people have been trained not to know what the real cost of a thing is. So I, I just yeah. want to throw that out there. Um, so the first product is this balm. Um, the balm is a a moisturizer for the vulva, it can be used internally. It's safe enough for ingestion, but it also has some really beautiful properties in creating tissue density. So if you feel like that that skin has gotten sort of um, lax, it, it helps with that. And when you put it on, it goes on sort of as a, a thicker unguent. And then the minute you start rubbing it in, it turns into a dry oil. And so it, it has about 15 minutes of play value. So what I ask women to do is to begin at the pressure points around the groin and give them a little massage right through the groin, uh, bring mechanically bring blood flow into the area because that also helps with arousal and moisture. That's part of the structure of the tissue of that area. And then go outer labia, inner labia and leave it on overnight. You can masturbate with it if you'd like, but basically I'm trying to get it applied to all the creases and folds of that tissue. And if you've had a baby and you had an episiotomy or you're about to have a baby and you have, um, perineal um, stretching. It's going to pause because there's a car going by. And you have a an impending perineal stretch for the six weeks before birth, take the thumb and apply downward pressure on the bottom of the perineum using this balm and you will have a much less likelihood, like 75% less likely to tear. So I ha there's different sort of ways to use that particular product. Um, but most women who use it report like a sense that this is the first time in their life that they have treated their genitalia as part of their own body and not for use in sexual transaction. That it, wow. often, it belongs to them. And I love that. Just like your knee or your face. Um, yes. Yeah. So that's my top product, my, my best selling product and the one that you know, most women put on subscription. The other reason it's expensive is a 90 day supply. If you use it every day, that was right. one thing as an entrepreneur, like getting the sizing, right? This one should have been half the size. Another one should have been twice the size, you know, getting the sizing correct. Yes. No, I completely, and it's, it's, yeah, you want to, with a larger jar, I think you feel you can use it every day. You don't feel, oh, I better keep this for a special occasion. So it's, it's psychological as well, right? Yeah. And also, um, do you remember how like your granny might've had these, uh, silver cold cream jars with the, or like the glass jars with the silver lid Yes, and the wide mouth. And I can remember that being arrayed on my grandmother's night table, those beautiful objects. And so that's actually the design of the jar long, you know, flat and with a wide mouth. And then the top has a 3D printed logo, which is meant oh, to that, that silver plate um, embossing. So yeah, it's yeah. like a modern version of that. So maybe I should have had a smaller jar. But on the other hand, then you couldn't put your fingers into it and, and it wouldn't look like granny's night table. <laughs> <laughs> So when you launched, how many products did you launch with? Four, five products, because there's four core products and then a travel size of each combined together in a pouch so people could try them. I really wanted women to try them. Often I would say if they had questions on whether it would work for them, just to buy the travel kit, take it home and try it. And then if they like it, come back. Because I, you know, I'm unconscious of like, I don't want people to be wasting their money if it's not producing results for them. 
But I did feel that having a trial or travel size entry was was really important for that reason. And how did you get your first thousand sales? Well, one of the benefits of being around in a community for a long time is having a lot of friends and acquaintances. So I had run, do you know the TED, you know, TED conferences? So in addition to running my companies and raising the kids, I was running TEDx in San Francisco for four years. And I was running a weekly salon with a, my then business partner called Love Spring. And it was such a beautiful gathering and everyone would come through the door. And so when it came time to launch, I just sent a note out to my friends, would you like a free sample? And I sent out, oh my gosh, I can't even remember, maybe 2000 free samples of those little kits to right. not only like my friends and community, but also to Instagram influencers, to press um, about two or three months before we had our first full-size product to sell. Right. I also wrote a little book called The Invitation wow. to Intimate Self-Care. And I found a woman on Instagram who is a vaginal aura portraitist. Just let that sink in for a minute. You send her a photo <laughs> of, your, of your pussy and she sends you back a line drawing colored in with the aura colors that she reads on it and I'm like this is the woman to partner with to do the illustrations in this I want that (laughs) (laughs) and so she made I said I want to I want a a technically accurate diagrams of women's bodies but that make that remind them every time they look at the diagram that they are nature like a flower or a tree and so she did these gorgeous illustrations that have like the the anatomically correct clitoral subcutaneous clitoral model which looks really beautiful I'm sure you've seen it it's got the legs that come across the side but then and but then she colored them in uh adorned them with flowers and vines and so this book is an 80 page book and I sent that out also to people Uh, so by the time we had the website up and running with the full-size product people had already had the opportunity to try the travel sizes and so our first sales were in that first month I think I think yeah we went from zero to a million dollars in annual sales in the first year wow that's amazing yeah and then the second piece was like getting familiar with um socializing it through Facebook and advertising on Facebook um I have been advertising online and trying to do pay for performance marketing for a long time. Google AdWords and all of that stuff. I sometimes felt like I was in business just to support Facebook because they, they are, their engine knows so much about a person. And I can say with such certainty, what kind of a person would need my product and, and find them and know the return on my ad spend in a minute, you know, know it by the end of the week, if the ads are working and how much I'm spending. It's every time I tried to spend on print media or do an advertising campaign or do public relations, like you could just never tell. And the, and the spend was so outsized compared to what you could do in a click environment. So the biggest investment in those first three or four months, as we started to scale was really around learning how to do digital Um, advertising and digital messaging. Uh, So that was the second growth opportunity. 
I wasn't sure I wanted to go into stores. You mentioned that, you know, you had some businesses and they were um, like anthropology is also a, a wholesale. We sell wholesale to anthropology now, but I wasn't sure because in my prior world, I'd worked in um food for a while. I knew that once you entered wholesale, you opened up a whole new universe of pain points uh, or possible things to go wrong. Like you had to, you had inventory out in the chain, you had the receivable risk, like you would sell things to them and they would take 60 to 90 days to pay. Um, you had training requirements, like no one can sell it as well as you can, articulate it as well as you can. You had online cannibalization if they were putting it in their stores. You had um, a whole sales force you had to support, all kinds of display literature. So I would say that the, the least efficient spend that we did in that first year was making the decision to go into spas, indie beauty, and retail. But we did it because the conversation with women about their sexuality and sensuality was so hard to have. And who was having that conversation? Indian clean beauty people, people would walk into these little boutiques, apotheke, apotheke, I'm start talking German, um, those kinds of places. And and a woman who's doing your bikini wax or your massage or your facial, she could have that conversation in an intimate environment. But it was hard to have it at wholesale. So we didn't really hit our stride in, in wholesale and retail until the summer of last year. And then we went to like 70 retailers, including Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom and, and Anthropology, who all started rolling out in January of this year, right? And then got all shut down by COVID. So we'll see what happens with that. But yeah, that decision for a new business owner, what's the channel and what's the cost of customer acquisition is so vital to whether or not you survive, how much investment you have to make in order to get to break even. And the direct to consumer got to break even immediately. And the wholesale is still not at break even. So, and price for that. So um, I wanna allow some space, but I don't wanna lose this lesson. When we price the product for customers, we, we had to price it for wholesale customers in our minds and allow for their for their margin to be baked into our price point, which was a blessing in disguise because their margin basically is what the Facebook takes. It actually isn't right. profitable. So I would say when you're doing your pricing, if you're starting your own company, definitely think through distribution and make sure that everybody in the chain of good and the chain of, 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 of passing it out to the customer has enough to make their own wage. Yes. And this is something I emphasize in possibly excessive detail with everybody I talk to, always allow enough room in your pricing for wholesale. Even if you don't think you're going to go down that route yet, it just can go so badly wrong for you if in two or three years time, your product's doing really well and you want to talk to anthropology or space MK and you realize you can't afford to. You would have to triple the price of your product. And, and what you can also trust, it's really an interesting thing. You can trust that that margin that they establish is set for a reason. So they have their own inventory, their own training, their own real estate, and their own marketing dollars they have to spend. You can think of foot traffic in retail as your, the equivalent of your online marketing dollars. And so the margin that they've established has been established over a long period of time and that they are being compensated for the tasks that you otherwise would be doing. Otherwise, you'd have this tremendous arbitrage between direct-to-consumer and retail, which to a certain extent you're seeing, but it's not as big as you'd expect. You know, like direct-to-consumer really 
um, does have a slightly higher margin than going to wholesale. But you will be very surprised at the amount of marketing dollars that you have to spend even in that, uh, that almost make up for what the wholesale price would be. So it's not like um, they're not being greedy at the wholesale. No. They're, they're doing what's, what, what they've found through their own failed, their own game, wins and losses, I guess. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Trial and error. Trial and error. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it costs a lot of money to run a shop. And like uh, anthropology yeah. spends a lot of money per square foot of shop floor space and training all their staff and having those doors look so beautiful and their own marketing campaigns. And you're getting in on that. And it's it's not greed. Yeah, you go in there. That's like an imagination space. Uh, their stores are so beautifully merchandised, and they they invoke in you, particularly whoever does their windows and things like that. They invoke in you how the simplest materials can create magic, and I I love that the brand is affiliated with that store. I think I, I at one point in my younger life I furnished my entire home from there. That's totally my aesthetic. <laughs> When, I, when you picked this up, I was like, oh, my God, I'm validated. <laughs> <laughs> they are beautiful They're stores, beautiful. definitely. So what do you think? I mean, you had a lot of experience when you started on this journey. But is there anything that you feel that you've learned in your journey with Rosebud? Something new that you've learned? I've learned so much with this company. Um, what... I've never had such reliance on other vendors like glass makers and plant uh, and extract makers and um, packaging people and shipping support and the importance of finding the right partners to scale with. I just, this is the first time it's been so mission critical. Like I had, for example, one component, um, a little tiny trial tube that was made by an unreliable partner. And it, and we went out of stock on that item for three months while we tried, while we were waiting for their tubes. And so I would say finding the right partners and vendors was really a, a critical new step for me. Um, the second piece is the physical, like digital software and stuff that I was doing before um, and services. Those don't have a lot of regulation around them. But physical products have more regulation. So when it's tied to a geography, to actually someone buying it in a place, uh, there was so much to learn around what the regulations were in that place. And I would say I made the products for the United States, for the U.S. market and Canada, but I didn't make them for the EU. And if I was going back in time, I would have absolutely taken a longer time not to just be in my first year of launch, but to think ahead two or three years and to know what those requirements were and to plan with that in mind. So um, physical products require a lot more compliance with local jurisdictions, and those are a little gnarly to figure out. Uh, the other thing, you're going to wake up every day doing this thing for three to five years at a minimum when you start a business. You better like it. So, uh, you know, I know one one of my first businesses was in steel mills and foundries. Couldn't be more opposite. But all of the friends I made were old dudes making steel and I-beams. Like 98% were those guys. And um, now my community is 
people who care about health and wellness, people who are advocating for women to be sovereign in their bodies, to have an equal investment in uh, medical dollars and who like who like beautiful things. And so I really also learned, I didn't know that I would learn this and this isn't something like that. Uh, it's just a big benefit of like how beautiful the friendships are when you're working in a domain of people who are pushing for the same values. So I, I'd say definitely, if you're choosing what business to do, pick something like that, um, that supports that. So many things, so many things. Uh, very hard to get contractors to care about your business as much as you do. Bring all critical functions in-house and know what's critical for your business. Like critical for me, this online messaging and merchandising, um, we have to know that back end to end. If you're direct to consumer, you might be able to work with an outside shop to do your website in the beginning, but you have to bring it in house because that's a day to day thing for you, tweaking it and making sure it works right. Um, yeah, I could go on. What else do you want to know? <laughs> well, actually, I want to go back a couple of steps and I want to ask you when you started working with big, I mean, places like anthropology, they, they're known for dealing with smaller, quirky brands. Yeah. Even though they're this big retail behemoth, they still have the, the impression of being small and indie and boho and cool. But if you're dealing with a big retailer like Neiman Marcus, did you encounter any resistance to the genre of product that you're making? I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, okay, so I, I love, they're great. They're a great company. They're fam they've been family owned for a long time. They still have the ethos of a family owned company, although they're, you know, they have a lot of investors and stuff now. Um, Neiman Marcus Group. So we really wanted them. And there's a wonderful organization in our industry called Indie Beauty. And they were doing a show in Dallas, IBE Dallas, an, an expo. And Dallas is where Neiman's headquartered. They brought 27 buyers by our booth over the course of the show and we did our spiel every time we talked about reinstating um the blacked out triangle at the base of a woman's body to body care you know why would you spend this on your nails and your hair but you wouldn't spend it on this beautiful life-giving part of you we did our spiel and um they love the product and then one of the buyers says you know but the guy who's the, the person who approves the category like our collective boss these are all women is a man I'm not sure that they're going to allow this category. And so it took us quite, they finally decided to do a test online in their, in Neiman Marcus online. And it just went really, really well. So it was the, we, I actually designed my gift set, this big gift set with the, like the Byredo perfumes with that kind of a, a linen sleeve and made it a keepsake box that once you took the product out, you could remove the insert and it would be like an old cigar box to create, you know, to like, Put your love notes in if you're if you're getting those. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it really resonated, and so it was that experience that allowed them to commit to an in-store test, and the in-store test was only in a couple of markets in New York, where they thought there was more tolerance. But I was very surprised at how quickly intimate wellness as a category uh, was accepted as mainstream, and it's largely because women, once you put the message out there and you normalize it, they're like, "Thank God, thank God." You know, finally, you know, you mean I can talk about this? I can have right. it. It was so the gatekeeping function um, was based on an old mo an old ideation of, of how um, society would respond to women's intimacy. And once once that doubt was passed and you could see the opportunity in it, they the, the gates opened wide. 
So, yeah, there was. That's really interesting. And the other barrier, I guess, is that with products like this, when you look through, somebody coming across your website for the first time and looking through products, and maybe you click on the Arouse Serum, or when you think of it in the context of lubricants that you might use during sex, mm-hmm. the, the dominating products in the market are exceptionally cheap. Yeah, they are. They're practically for free. You know, they're all like under ten dollars. There, it's all very. It's not perceived of as a luxury market. No. In my research, I've come across more brands in my research, modern, forward-thinking brands that are saying, "Mm, "This could be. This could be slightly nicer quality, guys. Uh, You're putting this on your bits. It should be nice." Yes. And that's a new concept for a lot of consumers. So do you have to spend a lot of time educating women to invest a bit more in that part of their body? You know, yes, 100%. Um, So here, the tissue on this part of the body is absorbent as the tissue on the inside of the mouth. It's 10 times more absorbent than any other skin on the body. So anything you put in there is going straight into your bloodstream. And if you use a silicon-based product, it's um, blocking your own lubrication from coming out. If you use a petroleum-based product, it's poisoning you. Like the EU has already said no petroleum products on the lips. It's the same tissue, very similar tissue. So just, the, just that awareness of how, inter, of how that tissue works and how much it absorbs, I think is, is um, causing people to rethink what they put on that part of the body. Um, the other part is because it's seen as transactional, like something you just use when you're about to have intercourse, uh, that it, you're only using it for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever you're going to need it for. Um, and maybe not that often, depending on who you are. It's not a high value purchase. When you start to think about it as treating the skin in this area or like a pervasive vaginal dryness that's not due to, it's not specifically for sex, um, you start treating it as like the arouse serum has uh, certain kinds of extracts of pepper. It has things that uh, create vasodilation and bring blood flow into the area. It has adaptogens that, that, that help with the whole body's overall arousal, like Damiana, ashwagandha, maca, things that are known to be aphrodisiacs in traditional medicine. And, and so it's, it's it has a different purpose that is more beneficial to the entire body. And that does require consumer, or I hate the word consumer, human education, individual human education. Um, and some people are responding to it. And I get a lot of laughter and tear emojis. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody yeah. told it the other day, will this give me a gold-plated genitals or whatever? And I was like, that would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, not really. But you will feel, it will feel, the tissue will feel younger for sure and fresher. I'm 54. I went through menopause at like 50. I have six kids, four biological kids, six kids in total, grandkids now. And my body's been through a lot and I use it every day. It's just fantastic. So if I do say so myself. (laughs) You mentioned your age and this brings me back up to something you said earlier. Yeah. And this is, I mean, starting any business with a physical product is expensive. You can't really get away from that, whether you're bootstrapping it 
or you're coming from a successful exit earlier in your career, it costs a lot of money to launch yeah. a product. Yes. And you you naturally look at a product with your own eyes and you are clearly looking at this with your own eyes, but you spent the money on having the external validation done. Oh, yeah. And I'm really interested in how the answers maybe took you outside your own bubble and gave you potential audiences that you maybe hadn't considered before. For sure. Um, I was surprised at the number of younger women who had concerns. And younger women, generally speaking, earlier in their careers have less spending money. And I think there's an opportunity to have a less expensive product if I can continue to work with that and something that's a more, more populist than what I have. Um, and I, I, the research showed that, but I was a little bit committed to doing something that I already had in my mind, like what I wanted. So actually, I didn't listen to the research. <laughs> out more opportunities. I could definitely have listened more to the research and you know, there's a couple of wonderful companies in the space that are doing a low cost product that have gone even to Walmart, you know, and they're, I'm not keen on their ingredients, but they're definitely doing a good thing for women and they're available, you know, more broadly. Um, stepping outside of your bubble. Yeah. My other businesses, I, I would like to say the first couple were bootstrapped and that was a slog. The next three were venture-backed, like raising tens of millions of dollars from venture capital firms. And those were great. And they, they, I ended up owning very little by the time they were sold because they get very diluted. And you also have very little control by the time they were sold. So what I was committed to doing in this one is to keeping the ownership close, you know, just family. And to being able to... Um, not be as accountable to shareholder value, but to be accountable to net value, like value for my customers, value for the vendor, value for the employees, and not even intending to make a big profit. Not even I don't think I make much of a profit at all because of that, giving a lot away to women's charities, but that I wanted the business itself to be a vehicle for supporting these other values. So because that was my goal, my financing strategy had to match that. So here's where it gets interesting in modern life. This was totally unavailable four years ago. I built my store on the Shopify platform, which is a globe, one of the most popular carts. And we use PayPal in addition as a checkout vendor. After you prove your sales, they start putting offers up in your window for growth capital. Every time you log in, you have an offer of $75,000 in growth capital uh, in both PayPal and in Shopify. So it's not, it's much cheaper than a credit card. They charge you, um, there's a one-time flat fee for the financing. So there's no interest over time. And then you pay back every day at a percentage of your store sales for the day. So if your store sales grow, you pay it back really rapidly. And if your store sales stay flat, it takes longer. And if they decline, it takes longer, but you're not at risk for a big debt payment. So between Shopify Capital, PayPal Capital, and ClearBank, which is another version of that, where they're reading your metrics every day. Um, we were, I was able to do all the initial funding out of my own savings and then use these uh, newfangled banking mechanisms to fund growth. Now, I asked my bank 
who banks me on everything to finance growth for this company. And they said, no, you don't have enough operating history. So I would have been out there dangling along, bootstrapping without these new methods. It's been amazing. I mean, I, they could do a case study on us to see how I use that money to finance uh, production. I've done three production runs already. And um, yeah, so we still own it all. That's amazing. Of like a couple of family and friends who put in tiny amounts. That's wonderful. Yeah. Anybody, so, I mean, I would say build on Shopify if you can for that and for the ease of, of doing all their plugins. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Shopify. I've, I'm, I can do website development quite well myself and I normally would use WordPress, but I'm, if you want to get your website up and running this weekend, Shopify all the way, like they're absolutely brilliant. And I love the back end and the accounting tools they have. So yeah. we built fan. our own template. It, just someone's out there thinking about that. We did build our own template. The biggest investment with Shopify and to make your site beautiful, all those templates look so beautiful, but you know what makes them? The, the photography. So here's another yes. place of like reduction in costs and with the best talent in the universe. My daughter is a design professor at Parsons School of Design and she's doing all the photography in her spare room, all the photography and all of that stuff. So also don't be afraid to use your relatives. No. Yes. <laughs> she's running yes. strategy for us now. It's turned into a little family show. Um, I have an amazing woman running sales. She, who I met doing the TEDx stuff, she had a program called Women Enough. She's very mission aligned, Michelle, who I think you've talked to. Um, my daughter, who's a Parsons alum, is doing brand strategy. My son, who I've been in business with for a decade, um, came over to help with operations. And then we have a couple of other, like our product person and our customer service person. We formed this little pod of the six of us who um, talk every morning. And it's really lovely. Like, I don't want to... I just want to say like the lifestyle of running your own business with people you love and trust is um, also very beautiful. As so, yeah, as long as you're not financially stressed, um, I didn't spend all my savings to do it. That would have been shooting myself in the foot. And I, I really think that stable financial, I think the trio of um, health, your own physical health and spiritual health, your home relationships like being relatively solid and communicative and your base and your base and your finances. If those are steady, every project you do seems to launch. And if one of those is off kilter, then nothing can really like get spinning well. So I still do the first things first, you know, connect with spirit every morning, do the health, do the relationship check, make sure the money's okay. And then out of that, do the work. Um, that was all an expansion on the question around money, but I kind of went off in a different direction. That's such wonderful advice. And I think that is the absolute perfect place to wrap up our wonderful conversation on such a high note, because that is wonderful advice for people. So thank you so much for coming on Making Her Way. It's been really just an absolutely, well, just such an exciting conversation. And I've learned so much. And I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for educating and inspiring people by telling all kinds of stories. I can't wait to hear the interviews with all the other women you talk to. You have a subscriber. <laughs> thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too. 
In the next episode of Making Her Way, I'm going to be talking to Sophie Levabra Barrow about Kin Living, her range of vegan and eco-friendly cleaning products and certified organic body care made in the UK, and how she has grown it to national success in just three years. Join us then. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.